Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, before times, uh, yes. you were a big traveler. Yes! I was also a traveler. We traveled together. Yes! Um, kind of ironically, because last episode we talked about Pompeii, which is like the one place that we planned to go together and never got to. Right. But we've uh, we've been all over the place. Yep. What was your favorite trip you ever took? Ooh. I don't know. I mean, I feel like different trips sort of are important for different reasons, right? Mm-hmm. So I think about like the yeah. first time I left the country other than to go to Canada, <laughs> um, which was to go to England, not to Canada. Canada's Ooh, awesome. Um, is that the one where I have a postcard that you sent me from the British Museum? I bet, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We you were um I was like it was like 1980 Yes. I want to say I was like 7. Yeah, it was 91 and ni- the it was January, it was sort of over New Year's. Okay. 91 and 92. January 91, January okay. 92. Um and it was because my mom's college, one of her colleagues had like did a sort of you know, couple week go abroad theater tour to London, basically. And so we mm-hmm. tagged along two years. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, same language, so that was helpful. Yeah. <laughs> but um, spoken slightly differently, right? Yes. Spelled slightly I... differently in some cases. Yeah. I've had more trouble with understanding the language in England than I have almost anywhere else in the world yes (laughs) i i will say this was on a different trip when i was older and by myself but um i went to york Mm -hmm. which is in england of course famously um and yeah i like went into a coffee shop or something to grab a sandwich or whatever could not understand what the guy at the counter said to me (laughs) (laughs) um and i mean and like you know, Yorkshire, even in Yorkshire today, like, it is today where there's, you know, you don't necessarily have the, um, as many people, I would say, who have really, really, um, thick accents. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been a kind of smoothing out in some ways of accents just because, right, everyone gets television and movies and all the yeah. rest of it. And people move around, and it's a university town, so, you know, you've got people in from all over, and, um, but, yeah, this was, <laughs> I just didn't know what he said, and I sort of yeah. gave him money, and he gave me change, and I was like, great, um, and I have, tr- I tried for a long time to figure out in my head what he might have said, I have no idea what he said, um, but it was, it's sort of one of those interesting things, yeah, where, <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't run into a lot of people with that level of accent, mm-hmm. but a, f- a few. Um, so in this case, I think he did have, you know, he was a local kid who was yeah, whatever. I'm sure that there were also people, though, you know, you wander around, you hear people with definite accents from other places where you might not be able to understand, right? Scotland, mm-hmm. Wales, wherever. Um, but yeah, you know, I think 
So that trip... I think it's harder a little bit as a native English speaker because you feel like you should understand. Right. And then you don't. Whereas if you're in France and somebody says something and you you don't catch it, you can just say, pardon, or, right. you know, uh, un foie, yeah. encore un foie, you know, yeah, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there is something also, also I would say, that is different when you're in a country where English is not the native language, um, or one of them, that there's also a level of understanding if you try to speak the native language, mm -hmm. they will speak to you in English, but they will appreciate the fact that you've tried, right? Yes. <laughs> um, whereas, of course, in England, there's definitely, <laughs> you know, yeah, the politics yeah. of the moment really tell you if they're going to like or not like Americans. I would say. Mm -hmm. um, it's fair, yeah. So yeah, so there's a, definitely a whole different kind of spin there. Um, yeah. But, you know, that trip, the money was different, right? You know, mm -hmm. pounds, that was just amazing, right? Pounds, um, and the sense of also that you could go see things that you had read about. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, now, I will say, in in a funny way, that trip is probably bookended by the first time I went to Greece, when I myself took mm -hmm. a batch of students, undergraduates, <laughs> right? So now I was the leader yes. of the undergraduates, um, with other colleagues of mine, right, from other departments, and we all went to Greece, and we're there for like six weeks, and we teach a class, and um, different classes, we each teach different classes, and they take you know, whichever classes they want to take. And they can take classes at the university there as well. Um, but that, the really interesting thing about that is um, in famously the British Museum, <laughs> which holds kind of the spoils of the empire, as it were. Yes. Um, you have all of the, you have basically all of the sculptures from the Parthenon. Right? The mm -hmm. main temple, the famous, famous, famous temple to Athena on top of the Acropolis that everybody knows. It's the landmark. It's the everything else. Right? Um, mm -hmm. And I loved the Parthenon as a kid. Our grandparents had a picture of it somewhere. I remember mm -hmm. being fascinated by it. And I built like a replica in sixth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade out of like marshmallows and sugar cubes and all this stuff. <laughs> And it was really big because I did it to like I did a scale model. Oh wow! But the scale was like six feet long or something <laughs> on wow. this board. Okay, yeah, it's probably still in mom's basement. Anyway, um, <laughs> and so there at the British Museum, I'm like looking at all the sculptures, right? So they have the sculptures um, from the pediments. They have the whole frieze. Mm -hmm. That's the sculpture that runs around like the inside. It's a big story. Um, the metopes, which are the sort of individual blocks of story. Um, the pediments are like the triangles. Anyway, they so famously, the British Museum has almost all of it. The Louvre has a couple things. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, it was amazing to be able to see that stuff. But of course, it's also weird because why is it in the British Museum? Right? Mm -hmm. Which even at the time, I was so thrilled to be able to see it, but I was also kind of like, why is why is this in a museum? Like, the Parthenon's still there. 
It's not like the Parthenon fell mm-hmm. down and was buried and they dug this stuff up. Right. Right. And whatever civil war was going on ah. that they decided to remove no. it or something. What happened? And this oh, is... No? So, when I take my students to Greece... And even when I don't take students to Greece, when I just teach about this in class. No. So the villain of this story is Lord Elgin. E-L-G-I-N. Ah, yes. Who weirdly has the same name as the town I grew up in. Elgin. Right. Illinois. I was going to say, are you? Pr- I always thought it was the Elgin marbles. It's but El- it seems yeah. that... Are, do you hold a grudge against his name spelling that you will pronounce it Elgin? No, that's just how it's pronounced it's- for him. <laughs> like, okay. you know, when you're American in Illinois, you pronounce Elgin. But when you're... Right. Whatever. So the Elgin marbles. Um, and yeah, Lord Elgin basically went around and took everything that wasn't nailed down. And by that, I mean, literally, one of the only things he didn't take that he wanted is this huge, huge stone trophy that was put up mm-hmm. for one of the winners um, of the, the festivals, when you know, the play festivals. When you mm-hmm. won, then they give you a giant sort of statue trophy. <laughs> so, you know, people think the Oscar weighs a lot. Yeah. This thing weighs, like, tons. And it was so okay. big, he couldn't cart it away. Like, he literally oh. couldn't cart it away. He couldn't figure out how to get it okay. away. <laughs> and so it's the only um, trophy of this kind, statue, to a winner that still exists. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's still there because Lord Elgin literally couldn't carry it away. Um, what happened was the Ottoman Empire was ruled Greece at the time. And they didn't care. Um, mm-hmm. And they were storing gunpowder and stuff in the Acropolis. Um, and not just on, on the Acropolis. As one does. Yeah, and they're actually storing it in the Parthenon. And I think it got hit by a cannonball and it everything exploded. So the Parthenon okay. actually was basically intact up until like the 1600s. <laughs> yeah. um, and then... You know, yeah, it, parts of it exploded. But it was still there. I mean, it was still intact, right. basically. Um, but then Lord Elgin, you know, went to, I guess, whoever the governor was or something, right? Um, and was like, I want to take some stuff. And, you know, he's talking to the Ottoman government, and they don't care. Mm-hmm. This is Greek stuff. And so right. they're like, sure, take whatever you want, basically. And hmm. he did. And so he literally <laughs> pried all this stuff off the Parthenon. He yeah, pried it's... the statues off the pediments. He pried the frieze off. He pried the medivies. He pried them all off and he took them away. And then he sold <laughs> them to the British Museum for an astronomical amount of money. I think, we'll have to note this, but I think something like 200,000 pounds back then. Wow. So we're talking like 1800s, 200,000 pounds. <laughs> okay. So I don't know even how many millions. But anyway... There's a site that calculates it, because periodically I use it to look up how much money Mr. Darcy makes. Oh, sweet. (laughs) So I'll link to that. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so basically, um, he stole all this stuff and carted it away and sold it to the British Museum. And I know periodically Greece goes, hey, uh, can we have that stuff back? Yes. And the British Museum goes, hmm, no. And (laughs) more than that... um, Let's see. In, I think, 2009, because the last time I was actually in Greece was 2019, summer of 2019, because mm-hmm. obviously I wasn't there summer 2020 or 2021. Um, it, but it was the 10th anniversary of the f- new museum that they built. 
So they built mm-hmm. an Acropolis Museum. Because the British Museum had always said things like, well, we can't give it back because there's too much pollution and acid rain. It will all dissolve if we give it back to you. So they built this airtight museum. It's this gorgeous state-of-the-art museum. And Mm -hmm. I take my students through it. And on the top floor of this museum, you can look out their windows all the way around. So it's this the whole floor, right? There are windows all around so you can look out. And you see the Parthenon on the Acropolis. I mean, it's right next to the Acropolis. So you see the Parthenon out there. And the floor is set out as though you were on a giant, you know, ladder walkway, walking around the the top of the Parthenon. Mm-hmm. So when you walk around the floor, it's as though you're walking around the top of the Parthenon, and it's set out that way. So you can see the Parthenon, and you are here at this sort of model top of the Parthenon, mm-hmm. where there is there are plaster casts of a lot of the stuff they don't have. Other times, they're just big blank spaces. Mm-hmm. Under each one, it's very carefully labeled where it is. So you get a lot of BM, 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 BM. And then the occasional LV. Louvre. Mm-hmm. BM, 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 BM. And so all the way around, right? So there's a plaster cast of all the stuff they don't have. There are a couple things they do have. There are a few things that um, Elgin left because they were basically worn away. And then there's some... Um, for the big statues from the Penimans, they're like... Um, Mostly they've, there are some recreations, but mostly they've just kind of like got pictures of what it, what it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and they've got some models of them in the railway, or the subway station nearby. Anyway. Um, so you can walk around and look. And it's basically right, this room is there waiting, theoretically, for the day, for the day that they'll return. And the British Museum is- They put up a big sign that they're like, this is where I would keep all my marbles if I had any. Exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I actually, I want to give a kind of shout out to British comedian James Acaster, who's got a segment that mm, you yes. can find on YouTube. Yeah, The Absurdity of the British Empire. Um, and, you know, he's got a whole little thing about the British Museum. And yes. he does talk about this. He's like, you know, his set is something along the lines of, imagine if <laughs> someone, you know, took your stuff and you knew they'd taken it. They put it in a glass case. So everyone could see it. <laughs> and they wanted mm-hmm. you to come see it, but they weren't going to give it back. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And the British Museum, they have this whole statement that I actually read in class. It's one of my rules, like, never put giant pieces of text on a PowerPoint. But this one mm-hmm. I put up, and we read the whole thing. And it's like this very arrogant statement about how they'll never give them back, basically. But... Um, <laughs> Because, you know, how they hold them, like, for the world and for Western civilization. Oh, my God. Right? So it recenters all this stuff to England and to the, them. And to, yeah. yeah. We are the, you know, we carry the flame yes. of Western civilization forward into the darkness. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So, obviously, you know, it's an empire. British Empire. This is what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, but... One of the things that happened also, just by the way, is that it did destabilize the Parthenon. So now there is some scaffolding around it, and they're trying to restore it. Um, mm-hmm. Because obviously having all the stuff pried off it didn't help. Right. Um, but yeah, anyway. So, um, that being said, the Acropolis is one of the most amazing places I've ever been. Hands down. Uh, that and Delphi, mm-hmm. actually. I'll give shout-outs to both of those places. Um, so, yeah. But I would say, like, but those trips sort of bookend in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um you know, what I think of travel, I guess. Right? Yeah. So you, go, you see things. You learn things. Right? Um, but it also, of course, they're bookended by Lord Elgin becomes kind of the villain of the piece. Um, 
There's actually another thing he took, which is also from the Acropolis, but not the Parthenon. Um, but it's this statue. Athens actually has most of them. Um, but there are these women who sort of hold up this balcony. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and on the, the Erechtheion. And, um, most of them are in the Acropolis Museum, but one of them did get taken by Lord Elgin to the British Museum. And there's this little flip book <laughs> that shows her flying back, like, dropping back in to the group. <laughs> and then it's, and it's very cute and funny, but also this kind of statement. And actually, when you go see them in the Acropolis Museum, there is a space for the one that's that's missing and they're um you know they're but they're really famous they're incredible they're incredible um mm-hmm. but they're they're technically cori um just just means like young maidens um like cori or core the uh persephone yes cori yeah yeah and she's Corai, that also just means young plural. girl she's like the girl yeah. right a lot of cori are assumed to be her the maiden yeah um but you know, it's sort of the decision. But there right. but these specifically are also known as like the um caryatids for various reasons. Okay. <laughs> Just because. Um anyway. But yeah, so we've gotten a little bit far from yes. our topic. Well actually. I was gonna say sorta. Of, Sorry. <laughs> but I think right, but the point is so here is us talking about travel, right? So travel mm-hmm. for for education, but also school kind of, right? I mean you learn, you have fun, but we're talking about sort of school groups and study abroad. Um but also, then you go into the British Museum and you see things that are reminders of travel, right, for empire building, for war, yeah, for trophy hunting, for colonization, right? So there's this interesting reminder, right? People travel, arguably, for two reasons, business and pleasure. Mm-hmm. But those incorporate a lot of things, right? Because yeah. business could be art you're a musician or a theater mm-hmm. practitioner and you dancer and you travel around the world performing yeah touring touring your right. show or you could be a mercenary soldier and you travel right. around the world hiring yourself out to different armies right different kind of show yes yeah um and the same thing you know for pleasure you travel around to see things and to see mm-hmm. people you know do their thing where they are and to try like actual Italian food in Italy. The mm-hmm. Italian cappuccino is the pinnacle. Gelato. Yes. Yes. Of all things. Um, Sfogliatello. Yay. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Italian food. It's the best. Curiosity. Yes. Um, you go because you're curious. Right. But then also like you go because you want to steal their stuff. Right. <laughs> These are other. Um, Yes, Problems. I can't say that ever motivated me, but I can see it has been a motivating factor for some. Yes, yeah. I do actually want to say, yeah. you know, I, this is one of the reasons why the British Museum. Shame on the British Museum because um, it's becoming more and more common for places to give back their stuff. Um, there's actually a yeah. Didn't some major museum just put up a thing about how they're going to repatriate all of their stuff? Yeah, a few have. Also, there's a collector who collected, um, I think, Netscape. He founded Netscape. And he spent, like, 30 million bucks collecting things 
from hmm, somewhere and realized a lot of them had been looted and he's giving them all back. Yeah. Um, I just read an article on this. So, you know, oh. people can do this. But it's, again, right, a reminder. <laughs> like, um, people travel for sort of these different reasons. And I think we forget that this has always been the case. Right? That people have always traveled for these reasons. People have mm-hmm. always traveled for business. They have always traveled for pleasure. Right? Um, and there's something sort of um, interesting. I think we assume travel is easier today. Yes. <laughs> it's faster. It's faster. I mean... Yeah. It's faster. It's arguably <laughs> easier. Right? Um, yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean... You know, more people have access to travel. Yes. But I think we assume somehow that the percentages of people traveling today versus the past must be really different. And I think they're not quite Mm -hmm. as different as we assume. Right? It seems more accessible. Right? Like, more people have, like, I don't know, how much does it cost to fly somewhere? Like, $400, $500? Yeah. Than in the past? Depending. I mean, if you go to Europe, it's, what, you know, more, of course. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Right. Yes, it's much more accessible today. Um, but I do, you know, so, yeah, more a greater percentage of people definitely do travel and go to more mm-hmm. places, arguably. Um, or more distant places, potentially. But that being said, I don't know, um, I think we still kind of exaggerate the idea that somehow in the past we assume people never traveled, which definitely wasn't true. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of people today who don't really travel, right? So it also depends what you mean. You know, in the past as today, people might travel a few villages over, right? Mm -hmm. Road trip it, so to speak. Sure. Um... As opposed to going on a long journey. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think we underestimate the extent to which people traveled in the past. Um, yeah, I feel like since we started doing this show, um, we've actually come across a bunch of different medieval travel logs that were written yes. by different... Um, yeah. You know, not just like, you know, the Marco Polos of the world, right. except some of them were Chinese and some of them were... Yeah. Um, Arabic, famously, yeah, yeah, from all different, yeah, 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 Um, yeah, absolutely, right. Um, Oh, and I should say, by the way, the Netscape founder um, has, yes, James Clark has given back. Most of them were from Cambodia. Oh, okay. So, yeah, there's always been, um, or I guess recently, there's been a lot of press about things that sort of left the country during mm-hmm. the Khmer Rouge period, mm-hmm. especially that were not necessarily mm-hmm. sold under yeah. real whatever. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, we appreciate people who give things back. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, right. Travelogues were very popular, right? So yeah. So Ivan Batuta, of course, famously Marco Polo, of course. Um, yeah. You mentioned Shanghai, China, um, but even, you know, like Marjorie Kemp, basically, it's a pilgrimage, but she's kind of writing a travelogue. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. So people travel, right. Same reasons. Um, people also travel 
like today, you marry someone who's from somewhere else and you might move to be with them. Right? It, royalty did that, of course, all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but other people might, you know, yeah. move as well. Um, it's not all like that weird, <laughs> that weird scene in the Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette movie oh, where gosh. she has to like strip off all her clothes at the border <laughs> and get dressed on the French right. side. Yeah. Um, Lots of people traveled in normal ways yes. without awkward nudity rituals. Yes. Yes, yeah. for sure. <laughs> um, especially because, you know. Sorry, that movie is a throwback at this yes. point. Oh, my God. Yes. That came but, out yeah. in, like, 2007. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. But, yeah, borders were definitely a lot more, um, you know, difficult porous. sometimes. I mean, borders are porous anyway. Yeah, yeah. But also but they were the idea of citizenship was not the same. Right. Borders are changing, politics are changing, leaders are changing, all sorts of things are changing, mm-hmm. right? Um so yeah. Um and then obviously, you know, people travel by foot, by horse, by boat, by cart and carriage. Um mm-hmm. there are not planes, obviously. So um yeah, travels a bit slower. So speaking of Marjorie Kemp, right, you know, you start in England, you go to Rome, you go to Jerusalem, you go back mm-hmm. again. Um, it takes a few Didn't years. Didn't you link me, you linked me at one point, and we can put this in the notes too, mm-hmm. a site that could calculate travel time in the Roman Empire. Yes. Right, right, right. Which was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's like a lot faster than you would think to get from like Rome to Londinium. Yes. Um, if, you, if you're thinking like, oh man, to go that way on horse is going to be like months. Right. It's really not. Right. Well, and also the interesting thing is um, if you're marching your army or something, they're going to march away and they're going to, they might sail down some mm-hmm. rivers and seas, right? The Mediterranean, stuff like that. Um, so there are faster ways to get places. But of course, yes. this is the other thing about traveling because you can't just, there's no such thing as flyover country. Um, <laughs> people frequently sort of take their time. Right? It really is about the journey yeah. frequently because, you know, yes, you want to get to your destination, but like, how often are you going to do this? You want right. to see the things as you go through them. Right? Um, yeah. So you, you know, hang out and look at stuff. Um, so, all of this being said, how much do we really know about travel? Obviously, trade is one thing, but how do, you know, so mm-hmm. goods from one place show up other places all the time. But how do we prove people have been somewhere? Um, so we should start actually with our graffiti sort of commentary here. The Vikings. Yes. We mentioned the Vikings visiting the Hagia Sophia. Yes. Which is a famous um mosque in Turkey. Yep. Is it in, in Istanbul? Yes. Probably. Slash Not Con- Constantinople. Right. Yes. I mean it was sometimes it was sometimes Constantinople. We are talking yes. about the Middle Ages. But yes. Yeah. Um absolutely. So um, one of the interesting things is how does right, graffiti from Vikings get there? And mm-hmm. the answer might be um, the guard, that they were part of an elite guard, uh, the Varangian guard, um, and they were sort of the, they were part of the Byzantine army, um, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, the bodyguards of the emperor, maybe. Um, and one of the reasons um, emperors... Byzantine emperors started recruiting people for this unit from far away. 
specifically because then they wouldn't have local political loyalties. Aha. Right? Yeah. So whatever was going on in politics, they didn't care. They'd protect the emperor as long as he paid him, basically. Right? Hmm. Um, And so this started, um, I think, originally... This casts the French Foreign Legion in a whole new light. Yes, basically. I don't know. Well, but that That's is always the point. been my backup plan. Yes. <laughs> that is the point of things like the Foreign Legion, um, obviously UN peacekeeping, right? That people who don't have a local stake can go in and make peace. Like that is kind of the point, mm-hmm. right? Um, so yeah, that's exactly what you have here. Um, and it started, I think, the King of the Rus. Of course, is where we get the term Russia. Um, sent some men to the emperor because, you know, I don't know, he owed him men or something. Um, and the emperor was kind of like, oh, this is a great idea. People who've come from somewhere else mm-hmm. and won't care about local politics. Um, yeah. And so ultimately, they ended up recruiting a lot from the far north. So, like, Norse, mm-hmm. which meant, you know, Norway, Sweden, etc. Right? So the Norse and the Anglo Saxons, for example. Um, so the graffiti might have been from the guard. People who like you know? fighting. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you can imagine you they like would have had knives. hate the cold. Come do the fighting somewhere warmer. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, and you'd have okay. your knife and you'd carve some, you'd carve your name in the mm-hmm. Hagia Sophia and be like, I was here, you know? Yeah. Um, Viking runes are kind of ideal for carving, right? Because they're all straight lines. They are actually specifically ideal for carving. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, this is what they are for. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was like, imagine if you came from Egypt and your name was like written bird. Oh, gosh. Uh, set animal water thing like hand and you'd be carving all right. day. I mean, the Egyptians, you know, they definitely um, learned how to carve all these things. But yeah, that's sort of the um, interesting sense of, you know, people travel mercenaries. Travel. That is Mm -hmm. historically true, right? If you are good at fighting, you go where people will pay you to fight, right? Maybe it's not doing so much for you at home. Yeah, go somewhere else. Yeah, go to the warmth, right? Um, I want to give a shout out to the Assassin's Creed series, Valhalla, which (laughs) opens actually with one of the characters has come back from Constantinople um, with a couple people that he met there who sort of join up with the the, mm-hmm. the group, the team. Um, but yeah, right? So this is absolutely a thing that happened. Um, and they knew it, and that's why they put it in the game, is my point. But yeah. Yeah. So um, in addition to this, right? So um, there's a lion that is now in Venice. It was brought there as a trophy, right? So speaking of okay. <laughs> trophies, the British Museum is the More. most infamous, but not, not alone. Um. So in Venice, there's a lion that was brought there as a trophy in, like, maybe 1687. Um, The lion was originally at Piraeus, which is the port of Athens. Um, It's a stone lion. And um, it has some Viking graffiti on its shoulder. Oh, is this the one in the plaza of St. Marco? I think it is. St. Marco? It's not the big one. It's a smaller one sitting on the ground. Oh, Okay. Um, I'm not sure exactly where it's sitting these days, but okay. Um, but yeah, it's not the famous. But he's know. also been graffiti. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right? Haven't most things? Yeah. I mean, if they're old enough, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Somebody's going to do it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so this line, his shoulders graffitied with Viking runes. And um, this probably also, right, the port city of Piraeus. It's the port of Athens. I mean, now it's part of Athens. It's not even a suburb or anything. But, um, you know, it makes perfect sense that, like, a guard might have been on watch or something. Carved as, mm-hmm. you know. Or... So this sense, right, that the Vikings definitely got around as mercenaries, basically. Um, so this is just sort of examples, evidence that we know of how they sort of got around <laughs> and pretty far. I mean, yeah, Constantinople, Greece, Athens. Um, so they're definitely traveling. Um, more famously, of course, is that the Vikings love to travel for business as well as pleasure. Right. <laughs> so business mercenary. Also definitely business of just looking for new lands that you could conquer. Right. Where could you pillage? This is what Vikings yeah. do. Where could you go do it? Um, where could you build new settlements? Because you wanted your own kingdom. You didn't want to be subject to someone mm-hmm. else, right? Um, we all know by now, of course, that Vikings made it all the way across to North America. Right. Um, for a while. Yes, for a short while. But the interesting question was sort of, they didn't know exactly, they, scholars, didn't know exactly when. And recently, um, someone came up with this brilliant theory and tested it. Um, apparently, in 992... Of the common era, so this side of the year zero, 992, there was a solar flare that was so amazing that it created an increase in carbon-14 absorbed by trees the next year. Okay. And of course, this is how you do radiocarbon dating. It's sort of the... Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so in the Viking settlement on the tip of Newfoundland, which of course they called Vinland, but you know... Um, they counted up the rings. They right; These trees contained the ring that was clearly from the solar flare. So counting them up after that showed that the trees were all felled in 1021. Oh, so that okay. seems to be when they got there and started building was in 1021, which is hilarious because that is a thousand years ago. <laughs> literally. Yes. That is literally a thousand years ago. Yeah. Um... And after about a decade, they went home. So they settled, they explored, mm-hmm. they built some stuff. Um, it's not clear, did they intend at some point to stay? Did they decide that, you know, there are already people living there, so it wasn't really worth it? Um, right. Who knows? Did they just decide they were too far away from, like, mm-hmm. other Viking culture? It's not entirely right. clear why they left, but they, they did, obviously. They decided that was it. This is something to be said for the Vikings, is that they didn't have a problem leaving if they wanted to, mm-hmm. right? Um, Do we know if they traveled... Did they travel uh, with women, or yes. would it have been, like, just men? Nope. Or? They definitely traveled with women. Um, and this is actually even more interesting. Um, so there's actually uh, Gudrid is a woman from Iceland who's actually named in the sagas. She's in the saga mm-hmm. of the Greenlanders and the saga of Eric the Red. Um, they don't agree perfectly on her life, but they, the basic details, they do agree. Um, she married Leif Erikson's younger brother. Uh, okay. Thornstein. Um, he died, unfortunately. She married another guy. They sailed to North America. They hung out for three years. I think they had their kid, or at least their first kid there. Uh, and mm-hmm. then they went back to Iceland. Anchor babies. Yep. <laughs> but they, then they all left. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's actually, um, I think uh, there's one of them at least has a story about her 
like interacting with indigenous women. So, you know, okay. talking to Native American women. Um, and she was supposed to be, you know, like good, a good diplomat, I guess. Um, so yeah, women definitely showed up. This is part of the ongoing attempt of a lot of scholars to demonstrate that Viking women did a lot of the stuff that they're supposed to have done. Mm-hmm. Much as scholars are always like, oh, they couldn't possibly, these are just stories. But then they find evidence, right? Like the woman right. who was buried with all her shield and her sword and armor and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't mean that all Viking women were warriors or went sailing on raids and stuff. But some mm-hmm. Viking women did. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the fact that there's stories seems to at least acknowledge the possibility that women did this right, right. like and then of course the, you know then you find evidence like the like the burial site so obviously mm-hmm. yeah women women did do it it's just that you know modern scholars always want to be like oh no women cannot have possibly have done these things a society like the, the fi- past was had. super sexist right um, unlike today right yeah yeah um, but yes unfortunately it's frequently modern scholars saying this you know and the thing is of course like look at joan of arc we know for a fact that mm-hmm. she existed Right. And she did do stuff. You know, otherwise, of course, people wouldn't believe in her. But she's recent enough, we have enough records that we know she did stuff. Right. So. Crucially, you know. the records are from Western Europe, which makes them. Yes. I feel like more credible to scholars than if she had lived in, like, you know, Kazakhstan. Oh, yeah, 100%. Something. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, scholars are. Some scholars are working on that bias. <laughs> somewhere not more more these days i would say yeah um but yeah but even when it comes to vikings right they're you know they're western they're about as western as you get um uh, but the mm-hmm. and the thing is they left so much written stuff and obviously it's embellished but it's not fiction <laughs> right mm-hmm. there's a difference between embellishing stuff you write about yourself you know like caesar of course also did and complete fiction right the sagas are embellished but they're not fiction necessarily. so yeah, so it's how we know that Gudrid, you know, the basic elements of her life that I have just told happened. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely other stuff in these stories, like her husband comes back as a ghost and tells her she has a great future. Eh, that may not have happened, right? That that may be embellished. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, she she was presumably real, etc. Um, this also brings us to the fact, right, Iceland. Um, Vikings definitely got to Iceland by 870. You'll notice that the Vikings okay. really pushed out. They they got they got to Salem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so they definitely get to Iceland by like 870. You'll notice, right? We're sort of creeping across the Atlantic. I mean, if they're in Iceland by 870, then they get to the Americas by 1021. Um, and the the tale usually about Iceland is that this everyone went there who didn't want to submit to Harold Fairhair, who uh, unified unified a. Uh, Norway, basically. Um, mm-hmm. But it's possible that actually people started going there earlier, like in around 800 or something. Um, okay. So, you know, it it may have been that some of them felt like they had to leave, but also the Vikings definitely were interested kind of in exploration and finding new places. Um, they mixed business with pleasure, you could say. Another fun thing. All right. So um, the Azores, which are part of um, Macaronesia, which is four volcanic archipelagos that are like mm-hmm. curved down. Um, the Azores are about 900 miles 
west of Portugal. Right. And then if you sort of curve down south, um, you get the Madeira Islands. Both both Azores and Madeira belong to Portugal. Then the Canary Islands, which belong to Spain. And then all the way down south, that's, you know, West Africa, mm-hmm. um, you get Cape Verde, which was Portuguese, but and was really settled as part of the slave trade, but is now an independent country. Um, so all these countries, um, it was originally thought that the Europeans, maybe the Portuguese, the Portuguese certainly claimed it was them, uh, originally discovered the Azores in like the 14th century or so. Um, mm-hmm. But in fact, sediment analysis has recently shown that humans and domesticated livestock lived there from about 700 to 850. Also, get this. This is exciting. Mitochondrial mouse DNA. What? Yes. Really? Mitochondrial mouse DNA shows that mice from a far northern Europe showed up there. Wow. Yes. This implies <laughs> that the Vikings once again made it to the Azores. Yeah. Okay. Which makes some sense. They're out sailing the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of in the middle there. Yeah. Why not? I mean, it's not especially close to anything. It's not. But if they're just out there sailing around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, someone lived there from far northern Europe, apparently, for about 150 mm-hmm. years. So I guess, so it's possible that for about 150 years, there's a Viking settlement there. Yep. Okay. So this is, right, this is travel. I mean, this is travel <laughs> as we sort of think of it. Um, but also mm-hmm. exploration and, you know, um, settling down, all these things. Yeah. So um, the interesting thing about the Azores is that after the Vikings left, um, did the islands stick around in memory somehow in Europe? Or were they sort of, I guess you'd say, rediscovered sooner than people thought? Um, because there's an atlas um, known as the Medici Atlas, or the Laurentian Atlas, which is dated 1351, but probably composed a little bit later, maybe like 1370. Um, and it seems to show the Azores on this map. Mm-hmm. Um, it was made by an anonymous Genoese cartographer. Genoa, of course, big sailing city. Um, a certain man named Columbus was from Genoa. Mm. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Ooh. Yep. Sorry. But I mean, it actually says huh. something about um, why he would have known all this. He would have known, of mm-hmm. course, he could probably get across the Atlantic because he comes from a city where people already knew that you kind of could. Right? Right. Um, they didn't know, of course, that North and South America were there. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, but they knew a lot. Um, and so this map seems to show the Azores. Um, and it's not clear if they guessed that they were there because they still knew there, maybe there are still rumors out there from like the past or if they had in fact been quote unquote rediscovered at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, this atlas also shows the Canary Islands, which had been mapped in okay. 1341 by an expedition sponsored by King Alfonso IV of Portugal. Um, the Azores also appear, as do the Canary Islands. Um, in the 1375 atlas, known as the Catalan Atlas, um, and then the Azores also appear on the 1385 map of Guillaume Soler. Um, so the Catalan Atlas and um, 
the map of Guillaume Solaire. Um, they're both Majorcan. Um, Solaire seems to be, this is fun, fun and exciting. So Solaire seems to be one of the few non-Jewish Majorcan cartographers, but the Catalan Atlas, um, is by Abraham Kreskes, mm-hmm. who was, um, a master of the Majorcan cartographic school, which was mm-hmm. a lot of largely Jewish um, cartographers. They were among the, the masters of the age of the middle ages, master cartographers. Um, they're sort of rival, you know, rivals. I don't know. A, the other style out there for the most part was Italian, the Italian style. Um, yeah. And the Azores probably, it seems, um, as well as the Canary Islands show up on the, these atlases, um, the Catalan atlas included. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll definitely include links because beautiful yes. maps. Um, and fun fact about the Canary Islands. Yes. Um, named after wild dogs, not canaries. Yes, yes, right. Sadly. Yes. <laughs> also, the island right. of Tenerife, I believe, is the site of the largest ever airplane disaster. I was going to say in modern history, but all airplanes. Modern, modern history, history, yes. Yeah. That's true. Uh, yeah, because two large passenger jets collided oh, on a runway. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So, That's right. yeah. Yeah. Fun place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think they have better they have better controls now. Yes. But. Well, they do. Yeah, they always put in new warnings when stuff like that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, so anyway, so this is worth pointing out, right? Um, Jorkin, of course... You know, Majorca is an island in the Mediterranean, so on the other side of the Iberian Peninsula, um, off the east of Spain, in this case. Um, And East of Spain. Yeah. Okay, so this is a place that the British always mention in books as they're going to, they're going there on vacation. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a gorgeous um, in the Mediterranean. Ibiza. Yep. They go to Ibiza or... Mallorca, yep. Mallorca, yep. yeah. Yes, yeah, um, yeah, Mallorca. Um, British but yeah. people. Again. Yeah, well, I mean, it's gorgeous, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so yeah, no. Um, but yeah, the interesting thing of um, Jewish cartographers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a sort of interesting reminder that Spain, of course, in the Middle Ages, is multi-confessional, right? Christians, Muslims, Jews living together. Kind of in peace and harmony some of the time, depending. Um, but just how um, how big a part of kind of um, exploration, right, a lot of these groups were. Um, and, you know, Spain obviously does get big into exploration. <laughs> they mm-hmm. sail. I mean, Columbus sails, of course, famously for Spain, ultimately. Um and so the interesting fact, you know, Portugal, of course, there's they're doing a ton of sailing. Um, a chunk of it is for the slave trade. Um, but that you have then, you know, frequently those are the Christian communities doing a lot of that. But that you have on the Iberian Peninsula as well, Muslim communities, Jewish communities. Um, and the fact that the sort of this famous cartographic school is Jewish um, is one of the sort of interesting aspect of this, right? Because we're so used to the idea that the world is seen from a very specific point of view. Um, and it's true. Like a lot of the maps that they made are sort of the 
very kind of Christian-based Mappa Mundis. Um, mm-hmm. But nonetheless, right, there's some interesting things here when you find out that um, a lot of it's through a kind of Jewish lens, right? Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so the sense of travel that, that's happening, right? And who's recording the travel, right? Speaking of, um, who's recording all the stuff that's being mapped. Um, okay, so this also brings us to um, sort of general sense of, you know, people living other places, right? So obviously, Jews and Muslims in Spain are Spanish, right? For hundreds of years, they're born and live and die there. But um, they did travel there, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? Um, And this is another reminder, right, that the ancient world was actually very diverse. The medieval world was definitely very diverse, right? Right. So... Um, Roman Britain, I know we've talked before because I love to bring it up, the fact that Roman Britain was diverse and that, right, Mary Beard, like, people got really angry at her when she showed diversity in, like, this cartoon for the BBC or whatever, because people were, like, mad. (laughs) Anyway, you know, but Roman legions came from all over the place, including, like, Africa. So the, the African presence in Britain definitely dates back to the Roman Empire, um, the Roman Emperor, Septimius Severus, was born in modern-day Libya, and um, definitely, you know, recruited a lot of legionaries from the area, which is one of the ways you probably get African presence in Britain, you know, because he shows up to, like, do stuff there. Oh, yeah. So... I was gonna say, that's how you get to be emperors, you recruit a lot yes. of legionaries. <laughs> yes. Yes. But the fact that, you know, some of them definitely do go to Britain, we know that there are people from Africa as part of the legions in Britain. Right, so that's Roman Britain. Um, Fast forwarding into the Middle Ages, um, there is still evidence for African presence in Britain, so some people maybe don't leave. Um, Mm -hmm. Some people continue to show up. Um, There's some questions um, in the the Domesday Book, right, the Doomsday Book, which is originally, Mm -hmm. you know, from 1085, William the Conqueror commissions it to find out what he's got now that he has England. Right, so it's a big, <laughs> big inventory of everything in England. Yes. Um, but, you know, it's huge. So they made some condensed ones, like abbreviated ones. Um, mm-hmm. And one of them, which is known as like the Doomsday Abbreviato, um, is beautifully sort of illuminated. And the entry for Derbyshire, Derbyshire, um, the capital I that begins the entry, um, has a man who's clearly of African descent um, mm-hmm. holding up the letter I. Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, he's wearing a sort of working class tunic. Who is he? Why is he there? We don't know. But he presumably was there because this illuminator didn't randomly draw this guy for Derbyshire. So we don't right. really know who he was or what he's doing there, but apparently they're He's living there. Yeah, I mean, there was someone, Barman at least someone African in living in England. Maybe enough people that, you know, the Illuminator decided to draw one. Anyway, mm-hmm. so this interesting point. Um, fast forward a tiny bit in time, it's not quite clear. Um, there's a guy known as the Ipswich Man, who was found in Greyfriars Monastery in Ipswich, which is Suffolk. Um, that's the Franciscans, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. And this guy was buried sometime between 1258 and 1300. He's direct, definitely direct African ancestry. So that means presumably he was either 
born in Africa or he was born to parents who were born in Africa. I mean, he was born to parents who were from Africa. <laughs> yeah. He may himself have been born in Africa. We don't know that. But we do know that he was born to parents who were definitely African. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So he's either a first generation or a second generation yes. immigrant. Yes. Um, and so he may have been from like Tunis or something. It's a guess. Okay. Like that area. You know, they do stuff. They take DNA and stuff from your teeth and things. And they try to figure this out. Um, so the there are a few possibilities. One is the monastery that he's buried in was built by um, a guy who went on a crusade um, and um, he was a colleague of this other guy, you know, a few guys who went on crusade from England. Mm-hmm. One of them um, seems to have brought back, it says in the, the pipe rolls, you know, um, brought back, quote, four captive Saracens with him to England from Tunis hmm. in 1272. Okay. Um, so was this guy one of those four? The interesting sort of thing is that from the investigation of the bones of this guy, um, he had a spinal abscess that at the end oh. of his life would have meant he probably couldn't move. He was probably cared for during the last years of his life at the monastery. He's buried mm-hmm. on the grounds in a single grave, which meant he probably wasn't poor or enslaved because he got a single grave inside the cemetery. Um, right. He would have had to have been Christian probably connected to the friary um and that's not a pauper's burial right so did he become a be in a position without having money right as we've talked about before yeah so what happened did he join the friary even maybe Mm -hmm. we don't know but if he was one of those four then he didn't remain enslaved apparently um right but we also don't know that he was one of those four Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's possible that, you know, he could have been. And then because, you know, the guy who brought them back was colleagues with the guy who built the friary, that maybe he was like, oh, this guy wants to convert and be your friary. Can he do that? You know, that's possible. But um, there are some weird questions. More skeletons have actually since been found. Nine other African skeletons Hmm. have been found in the Ipswich Cemetery. They seem to come from sub-Saharan Africa. Wow. Who are they? Why are they there? We don't know. Um, this sort of leads us to the, where this is slightly out of the Middle Ages, but Henry VIII's favorite warship, <laughs> the Mary Rose, um, sank the Battle of Solent in 1545, uh, fighting against France, of course. Um, and a multi-isotope analysis of the crew's teeth combined with DNA research demonstrates that one of the crew was from Northwest Africa or Spain, right? It can be hard to tell okay. because again, the Ottoman influence um you know obviously right spain and north Mm -hmm. africa have a lot in common um but he was so he was from that area right either northwest africa or spain Mm -hmm. um he had a pomegranate on his leather wristband which is the symbol of catherine of aragon of course henry's first wife um so maybe he was you know from spain you know he was all Mm -hmm. for catherine of aragon who knows um and another but this is also worth pointing out, because, I mean, Spain and England weren't particularly... I mean, they were friendly while Henry was married, and yeah. then less friendly thereafter, right? 
to, to say the least. Less, fr- less friendly thereafter. Yeah. <laughs> it's a kind of a downward sloping line. Yes. Yes. Um, but anyway, but you know, so here this guy is. Okay, I'm the Mary Rose. Um, and then there was another guy um, who was found near a chest that contained a panel that might have been made in northern Italy. The guy himself seems to be from the southern European coast. Right? So okay. southern European Mediterranean-ish, I guess. Right? Okay. Um, another guy who was found in a cabin with Spanish coins and tools appears to have hailed from inland southwest Spain. So we got mm-hmm. more, more Spain, right? The five remaining crew members included were probably all from Britain, but one of them seems to have grown up along the Thames. <laughs> um, but one of them raised in southwestern England. Mm-hmm. But this, the guy who was raised in south and western England has mitochondrial DNA that suggests his family originated in North Africa. So oh. he apparently born and raised in England, but family originated in North Africa. But some time ago. Very specific. Yeah. Tooth analysis that you could be like, oh, he grew up near the Thames. Yep. <laughs> yep. I mean, I guess if the Thames was polluted enough, like maybe he had like weird pointy teeth or three eyeballs or something and it wasn't that hard to tell. Right. But, I'm sure it has more to do um, with, you know, sediments and, you know, what what's growing along the whatever <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Sure. Who knows? But, um... But yeah, but yeah, so the guy who grew up in south southwestern England, though, apparently has roots in North Africa, right? But they'd apparently been there okay. some time, because it's mitochondrial DNA yeah. that tells you that. Um, so it's so it is, right? It's a sort of really interesting reminder. This is the crew, right? So they're, you know, working, they're just citizens of England. But mm-hmm. a big chunk of them are not from England. <laughs> and even mm-hmm. one of the ones who is clearly has family origins elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? So it's a sort of reminder, like, people absolutely traveled, people immigrated, probably more than we kind of realize today, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. Because you assume, like, it would have been so much harder or whatever. It, I'm sure it mm-hmm. was. But people did it all the same, right? Um, I mean, like, one of the big questions that I think we think about a lot in modern America is, like, what does it mean to be from a place? Yes. Right, like, how long do you have to be somewhere before you're from there? Right. I've lived in Madison for 21 years, Mm -hmm. but, like, when people are like, where are you from? Am I from Madison? Right, right. I don't know. (laughs) But it sounds like people have been having that conversation, or at least, like, you know, for a really long time. Like, way longer than we would have thought. Of course. Oh, for thousands of years. Because that's the thing, right? Yeah. There are people who are always like, of course you're from here. You grew up here. And other people who are like, no. Mm-hmm. If your family hasn't been here for ten generations, you are not from here. Right? right. Uh, yeah. So the those two points of view have always existed. Right? But look at all these people are fighting for England on Henry's favorite warship. Right. And they go down with it. So that absolutely says something about, first of all, how trusted they were. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what their what their point of view presumably is about their country, right? Whether yes. their adopted country or their native country, um, because they're you know not just fighting for England, but they're good enough to be on this warship, right? Um, but yes, actually, on that note, I have another really interesting example of this. We're going to move to okay. Asia. Um, okay, the Sogdians, 
an Iranian Persian people, um, many of them end up living in China. Mm-hmm. And recently discovered, um, there are some murals in a tomb in northwestern China, Shanxi province, um, Tang Dynasty, 618 to 907 or so. Um, and these murals show two men. Um, one is a Saudian merchant who is like facing off with a camel who's laden with goods. Um, probably a reference to the Silk Road, which is one of the things mm-hmm. Saudian merchants were a big part of that, which is why a lot of them were in China, right? Um, and another one, there's a groom, also a Sagdian man, right? A groom, like a horse, horse groom, right? Mm-hmm. Who is attempting to tame a wild horse and two greyhounds are watching. Yay. Um, you know, doggies, very helpful, always. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so these murals are in the tomb of a 7th century um, equestrian official whose name seems to have been Shonda Kang. That's King, mm-hmm. like the upcoming Marvel. I mean, he's already appeared once, but he's upcoming supervillain. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. And um, he's going to be in Ant-Man Quantumania. Yes. Anyways, <laughs> King, he does get his name sort of, you know, I mean, it's a great name. Anyway. Um, and so this official, um, he managed horses in the ancient capital. He had a prominent position because of sort of the military importance, of course, of horses. The family name King is related to the name of the um, of a major Sagdian city um, in modern day Uzbekistan, um, Samarkand, um, and this implies that he was a descendant of Sagdian immigrants, even though he was pretty clearly, again, right? They test everything. Born, lived, and died in China. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, his tomb is located near the starting point for the Silk Road. Which is a kind of reminder again that the Scythians were really important to the Silk Road as merchants and equestrians, right? Um, so here again, yeah, he is Sognian in the sense that, like, that's clearly sort of his heritage, that's still his name, like the lineage of his name, but, you know, he's Chinese. He's born, lived, and dies there. He's really important. He raises to a great level. He's, you know, um, gets murals in his tomb. Right? Yeah. Um, and yet still clearly has some of this identity because the murals in his tomb very clearly sh- showcase his identity as Satyan, you know, and that's, of course, is kind of attached also to what he did in life. I mean, he did tame horses. This is one of the things that they were known mm-hmm. for. Um, so there's something, there is something really interesting, right? It's again this reminder of how, how these questions work, <laughs> still work. Right. But again, right, just because this is the past doesn't mean people aren't moving and traveling for all the reasons we do today. Right. Work (laughs) again, work, Mm -hmm. business, pleasure. Um, We we mentioned mercenaries. So I have to mention John Hawkwood again, you know, um, because he's the famous 1300s mercenary from England who becomes so famous that Florence ends up like um, raising a monument to him. Um, Supposedly because I guess, you, you know, he was. Honest enough, you always knew which side he was fighting for. Yes. Um, which is... We mentioned him in a previous episode. Yes, yes, yes I believe so. And we'll put a link to that. Yeah. It, um, but it's yeah. it's possible that Chaucer's... I don't Chaucer's, know what number it's going to be because it hasn't come out right. yet. <laughs> but it's possible that Chaucer's knight in um, 
Canterbury Tales is based a little bit on John Hopkins. Right. Chaucer's Knight also clearly a mercenary. He's been going around fighting for whoever will pay for him. Right. And he's been all over the place. And that's sort of the point of that commentary, right, in or the speech in um especially the prologue, right, in Canterbury Tales, is where the knight has been. He's been all over the place. Right? He has been all the way to Russia. He's been in the Middle East. He's been all over. Right? And he's fought for Christians and against Christians and with all sorts of people. Right? <laughs> Um, yeah, so, yes. and it, it's not seen as uncommon, right, that he's mm-hmm. been around all those places. Um, so, finally, we should mention, of course, diplomacy. In addition to marriage, obviously, people travel because of marriage. Look at Catherine of Aragon. Um, seems to have enticed some of her countrymen, perhaps, to follow her to England. You know, just, why not? Go try your luck in England, now that their queen is yeah. from your area. Um but of course, there are also things like diplomatic missions. Um, and so Xu Jing, uh, Chinese, 1091 to alone 53, visited Korea um, as mm-hmm. part of a diplomatic embassy, basically, from China. Um, he was sort of in charge of protocols. And um, he wrote a book about it that was called The Illustrated Account of the Embassy um, to Koryo. And all the illustrations have been lost, sadly. Oh. Yes. But the text remains. Because the text was copied a lot. The illustrations were not. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but his book discusses everything he sort of saw when he was there. And probably a lot of things, of course, that people told him. <laughs> um, but, you know, fashion, temples, religion, military, art, the layout of the capital, common customs, uh, ships, um, you know. All sorts of stuff. He also talks about how they got Very there thorough. and back, you know. So, um, you know, and he, you know, wrote this book and sort of left a lot of really important stuff from from a kind of external viewpoint, right, about what was happening. Um, also, we mentioned, like, traveling artists. Usually, you didn't travel that far. Touring minstrels definitely traveled. But um, we've mentioned before a kind of extreme example Um I think in uh, the episode on May Day, um, episode 31, we talked about Adam Della Hall, uh, who wrote a musical mm-hmm. about Robin and Marion. Um, yes. And it was written actually for performance at the Angevine court of Charles I of Naples. Uh, Adam traveled to Naples with his patron, who was Count Robert II of Artois. Um, and sadly, Adam died there. So he did not mm. make it Aww. back home to Arras. But, you know, that's a sort of another example. It was diplomacy for the Count. It sort of was for Adam. But, you know, you like as an, you take your entertainer along with you, <laughs> right? And have him write a show for the court. And, yeah. I mean, of course, that sort of thing still happens. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, right? The sense of, um, yeah, that travel, of course it was hard, right? And not everyone's Ibn Battuta who... Traveled for like twenty five years <laughs> before returning yeah. home. It's very intense. Um, and he went everywhere. I think Wikipedia will link to it. They have like the route that he took. Do they? Yeah, with okay. like different. There is definitely a web page that does with different colored, um, like sort of different colored lines for each kind of Ooh, leg of yeah. the journey. You know, but he also yes. like when he stayed what somewhere. Time they thought he's doing all of yeah. them. But also, like, when he'd stay somewhere for, a, for like, a few years, he'd stay in one city for, like, a few years at a time and get married and, like, maybe have a kid and then move on. 
you know, so he's, <laughs> you know. He's a busy guy. Yes. But also, like, there's kind of a point at which that's, I mean, he is traveling, but also he's more of a he's wanderer, I would say. Right? Same with Marco Polo, right? Some people, like, that's more of a wanderer. Like, when you leave home and mm-hmm. you just don't go home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're kind of wandering around. Right? I mean, you might get imprisoned occasionally and stuff like that. Those things happen, of course. But um, but it was not at all uncommon for people to be gone for two to three years, you know, on a planned mm-hmm. pilgrimage or something, because that's just how long it took. And, of course, you get to Rome, you're not just going to stay there for a week. It took you, like, three months to get there. You're going right. to stay there for, like, six months. <laughs> you know? Also, you didn't have, like, a vacation plan where your employer expected you back you know exactly five days right um yeah but you know at the same time you have things like canterbury tales where they're just going from london to canterbury mm-hmm. you know so you just that could trip- take a took them a while yeah it did take a while but <laughs> i don't i don't know how much they really wanted to get to canterbury Jesse. they weren't in a super hurry for <laughs> sure yes but yeah um so you know, the road trip is one thing. Obviously, though, we were a little more interested in this discussion of how you have things, you do have things like immigration, you have proof that people showed up in places unexpectedly, or hundreds of mm-hmm. years before you thought they did, or hundreds of years before other people you know showed up, somebody else, probably the Vikings, showed up. Right. Yes. Um, but yeah, but it seems to frequently be the Vikings. Yes. They get to a lot of places first um, Mm -hmm. for Europeans. Um, And some places first, as far as we know, for anyone. I mean, you know. Um, Like, it's not clear that the... I think that the Azores were inhabited before that. (laughs) Um, Or they weren't anymore at that point, I guess. Um, Iceland, you know. um, Greenland, of course. (laughs) So... Well, there are people there, but... I guess I pref- would prefer the Azores, potentially. Yes. Seems like a little bit better weather. I don't know. I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, and obviously they got to North America and found there were people there and kind of left again. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Um, not that they were against, obviously, raiding people or anything like that. They moved into England for a chunk of time and then left again, as we know. But, yes. um yeah, but, you know, it is just sort of a reminder that actually England, again, right, was very diverse in ways that we definitely forget. Um, mm-hmm. Not just things like Roman Britain had wide diversity people from Africa, you know, that that was true throughout the Middle Ages, but even things like the Norse showing up, um, the Dane law. We don't know maybe yeah. as much about that as we could. Um, and Vikings themselves were a lot more diverse than we thought. There's been recent DNA about mm-hmm. that. Um that some people who were clearly Vikings and fought with the Vikings, but weren't necessarily of Norse ancestry. Mm-hmm. And when we say, of course, we're clearly Vikings in the sense that they are buried with the stuff. Viking. Viking honors. Yes. <laughs> so, such as it is. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like in, you know, so many people get their idea of what the past looked like basically from TV or movies. Mm-hmm. And we really are done a disservice by the um, homogeneity of the casting. Yes. Um, to a certain extent, though, I'm also reminded of um, an essay that uh, Roland Barthes wrote 
that I think I mentioned it before where he complained about how Americans will just cast anyone to be like to play Caesar and they don't cast someone who looks Italian and then mm-hmm. people don't um they sort of, you know, don't have the idea of what somebody who's Italian looks like and like you get this sort of sense of of homogeneity of Europeans. Mm-hmm. But also what Barth's probably overlooked because he was, you know, a white French guy writing <laughs> in the 60s yeah. is that the the other disservice that these movies are doing, which is that every Ro- Roman legionary that you see is is white and, mm-hmm. you know, that we're missing out on all of the f- people who would have been there from Africa or from, you know, yeah. all over. Yeah, from the Middle East, obviously. Right? Yes. It trounced all the way through Egypt and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Famously, right? I mean, Cleopatra's always cast as white. And people are like, well, she's of Greek descent. Yeah, but also look at Greece. Diverse. Right. Yeah. So the idea that, you know, we've talked, I think, before about the idea that Greece isn't necessarily white either. Modern mm-hmm. Greece frequently isn't yeah. considered white, but also past ancient Greece, you know. Um, yes, there are huge problems. And obviously we have so many problems showing modern diversity that we know exists it's not right. surprising we have so much trouble showing past diversity but the things that we also don't know it exists mm-hmm. right um because yeah modern diversity you can look at that and be like hey where are all the you know diversity at why yeah. is all the people in that movie white because clearly they shouldn't be but that's because we can look around us right the past mm-hmm. people are more um hesitant i think sometimes to complain about it because in some ways i mean you're fighting for representation today pick your battles Mm -hmm. but also um because there is this sense of i think there is sort of a sense like well maybe you know at this point in england's past it was only white people even though it wasn't Mm -hmm. but like that right so it's it's the difference between having visual evidence of like things that people have drawn yes and the like the way that that sort of takes precedence in your head over the, like the evidence of DNA, right? Where you're, you can say, "Oh, the DNA says that," but it must have looked like all of these marginalia drawings. And then, if your marginalia doesn't have any people who are non-white in it, or the right. pigments have faded, or whatever, right? Which is why that it somehow overwrites book. it in your head. Yeah, but that's why yeah. right, the abbreviated Domesday book is so important. Because there is a little mm-hmm. guy who's clearly African holding yes. up the eye, you know? Yeah, in, there he is, right? So, yeah, but you're right, absolutely. It it, it always matters. Um, mm-hmm. And I should point out that there is an Anne Boleyn coming out. Um, is it a movie? Is it just a movie about her? Is it a TV series? <laughs> <laughs> um, with an Anglo-African actress playing Anne Boleyn. Um, Interesting. I have to look this up because I have not paid as much attention to it as I should have. Um, hmm. So that is Movie? not a series that's going to have like a super happy ending potentially. It's not. Oh, I think it's a TV <laughs> series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. With who is who's in it? Merle Oberon, who is of Sri Lankan. Maori and British descent. Oh, oh no! You're looking somewhere else. That's old. Yeah, that's in a Smithsonian article. Oh yeah, 
I should read the entire article. No, this is, uh, oh, Jodie Turner-Smith. Cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as Anne There you go. Yes. Um, that's super cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's cool. She, I mean, she's a really good actor, obviously. Um, she's been in- There's also the her- recent casting of, um, who is it? Queen Charlotte? Yes. In, uh, the, uh, Bridgerton- Yes. Yes. Stuff. Yeah. Um, Which is a whole different kettle of words. Yes. But also does say something about her ancestry is a little bit interesting. Mm -hmm. And so they were actually picking up on something that might, that is potentially there, that she might have been descended from someone who was mixed race. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. Well, we are going long, so I think we're going to leave it there on Bridgerton. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> good it's a good place to leave it, it is um yeah <laughs> so until we are able to travel again um thank you for talking to me yes and thank you everyone for listening check out our website at askmedievalist.com leave us a review facebook us tweet us i don't care um have a lot of fun keep washing your hands and keep it medieval Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. <laughs>